0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, on January 17th, 1994, at 4.30 in the morning, Los Angeles was hit by an earthquake of 6.7 magnitude. The power went out in the city and in places up and down the West Coast. And before long, the 911 calls were coming in. People had woken up early on that morning to total darkness, pitch black, and they were calling panic. That wasn't that unusual for an earthquake, but what was unusual was what the people were reporting in their calls. They had stepped outside to see what happened. And as they looked up into the sky, they saw something that troubled them. Some people who called in reported that it looked like a giant silvery cloud that was hovering over the city. People were nervous, and some people even speculated, maybe this is an alien invasion, it's just begun, and people were starting to panic. They had been thrown into darkness, their lives had been shaken, and now they were unsure and uncertain about what was going to happen next. We're continuing in our series called The Big God Story. We've been telling the story of the Bible from beginning to end, from creation to new creation. And today we're actually gonna wrap up the Old Testament. We're gonna tell the story of an event that's one of the most important events in the Bible, but it's an event that not a lot of people have heard of. It's the event called the exile. In the exile, this was a time of upheaval for Israelite society. It was a crisis that left people shaken in darkness and afraid for their future, uncertain of what would happen next. And as we look at this upheaval in Israel's life, I think we're gonna see some things that actually apply to our current season of crisis as a world and a society. But before we get there, let me do a recap of where we've been so far. We've been telling the story of the Bible through the lens of shalom. Shalom is the biblical word for wholeness or completeness, peace, harmony. It's the way things are supposed to be. We've talked about four aspects of shalom. Shalom is God's people in God's place, fulfilling God's purpose, enjoying God's presence. This is what our hearts long for. But sin came in and shattered shalom. And because of that, all of us now live in a broken world and we have busted hearts and we go seeking shalom in all of the wrong places. But the story of the Bible is not the story of people putting shalom back together. It's actually the story of God putting shalom back together for his world. And so as we've seen so far, God has gone through and actually picked up the different pieces of shalom. First, he rescued a people for himself, the people of Israel. Then he gave them the law and taught him taught them his purpose. Then he blessed them with his presence in the tabernacle and the temple. And then he brought them into his promised land, his place. And last week we got to the pinnacle of this when God actually appointed a king, King David and his children after him to be the linchpin of Shalom, to hold it all together. And because of this entire story, that's the reason we live in a world of perfect peace and Shalom today. Obviously something went wrong. And today we're gonna talk about what that is. Let me share another helpful chart with you for understanding the Bible. This will help you piece together some of the things we've talked about, put put it in the big picture. The story of the Old Testament starts up here with Adam and Eve in the garden. When sin comes in, everything comes crashing down in the fall. And it's at this point down in the depths where God calls Abraham and his family. And then things start to move upward. This is where we get the Exodus and the law and the tabernacle and the promised land. And at the top of the climb, we get David. But then in the second half of Israel's history, things take a turn. They start heading South. After David, the subsequent Kings with a few rare exceptions, they got steadily worse and worse. Pretty early on, the country actually splits in two. We've got the Northern kingdom of Israel and the Southern kingdom of Judah. And the Northern kingdom very quickly abandons God abandons his laws, goes to worship other gods. And the Southern kingdom lasts a little bit longer, but before long, they do the same thing. Until finally God says, enough is enough, and he sends the people into exile. Now, let me give you an image that will help you remember what the exile is, okay? I want you to imagine this, whenever the word comes up, I want you to picture Pac-Man. That's right, Pac-Man. This is actually what I use to explain this idea to my children. As we're reading through our epic readings when we're in a book that talks about the exile, I I tell them, remember Pac-Man because Pac-Man represents the ancient superpower, the empire of Babylon. And Babylon was going through the region, gobbling up country after country after country when it finally came to this one big dot, the city of Jerusalem. And so the Babylonian army is standing outside the city of Jerusalem. And normally in a story like this in the Bible, This is the part where God steps in and defends his people and drives back the army. But at this point in their history, the people have said, God, we don't need you. We don't want you. And so God says, if you don't wanna trust me to defend you, you can defend yourself. And so he lets Babylon come in and gobble them up. And so that's what happens. Early in the sixth century BC, Babylon invades, starts deporting people from Judah. And ultimately in 586 BC, they destroy the city and level the temple of God. When this happens, Shalom is shattered again. It's like Genesis 3 all over. Shalom unravels, Adam and Eve head east out of the Garden of Eden and move in the direction of Babylon. This event was the most massive upheaval in Israel's history. About a third of the books of the Old Testament are written about it, about how it happened, what it looked like and what the aftermath was. We're gonna drop into four of those books today. And as we do that, we're gonna learn four attitudes that actually will help us as we uh, navigate this time of upheaval that we're going through as a world. Here's the first attitude we find. In the exile, Israel was humbled. Israel was humbled. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter seven. Uh, Jeremiah is a big book right in the middle of the Bible, but if you can't find it, it's okay to look it up in the table of contents. And Jeremiah lived through the time of the exile. He was an eyewitness of this. And he was also a prophet. Now I gotta explain what a prophet is. To do that, let me tell you a story. So one time when I was in college, my roommate Brian and I, we were heading back from class and it was a a cold day. So we were kind of bundled up and we're walking pretty quickly because we wanna get someplace warm and out of the snow that was falling on our heads. And as we're walking, we're in the, midst of a a kind of a, 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 you know, vigorous conversation. And if it was anything like what we normally talked about, we were either debating, you know, predestination in free will or which character was the best in Super Smash Brothers. But either way, I was really into the conversation, kind of distracted, not paying attention to things around me. And as we're walking along, we're talking, all of a sudden, Brian punches me in the chest. And I'm like, oh, you want to play Smash Brothers, man? We'll play Smash Brothers. I'm like, why'd you hit me? What are you doing? When all of a sudden, a huge snowplow comes barreling down the street in front of us. The street that I was just about to step in. The problem was, not only was I uh, lost in the conversation, there was also this sign that was in my way that as I walked, it stayed perfectly in between me and the plow. So I couldn't see the danger that was coming. But Brian, a few feet beside me, could see the plow very clearly. He didn't understand why I wasn't slowing down or stopping. And so when we finally got to that danger point, he hits me and takes drastic measures to save my life. This is the role of the prophet in the Bible. A prophet is someone who punches someone in the chest so they don't get hit by a snowplow. Let me explain. Prophets were sent to warn God's people. They would say, you may not see it, but you are on a collision course with disaster and you need to change the path that you're on. Another way to think about it is a prophet was sort of like God's uh, prosecuting attorney. When the people had violated God's laws, they would come to the people and, and, and bring charges against them, saying, you need to repent, you need to change, otherwise there will be consequences. And so the prophets, they do this generation after generation. They keep coming to the leaders of Israel and Judah. And the kings, they keep ignoring them, dismissing them. And finally, Jeremiah in this line of prophets, it's about to happen. Exile is coming. He's got to punch them in the chest and say, don't step in front of the plow. And this is one of the things that he says, Jeremiah 7, starting in verse five. Speaking on God's behalf, he says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner and the fatherless or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah calls out the two main sins, the same sins that every prophet before him had called out. Look at verse six at the end. It says this, Do not follow other gods to your harm. The first major sin of Israel was idolatry. Now, for the people of Israel and Judah, this meant literally bowing down to worship other deities, gods from the cultures around them. But what idolatry is at its heart is the answer to this question. What do you really think is going to take care of you? what do you think is going to meet your needs? We might not turn to pagan deities for these things, but there's always something that we look to other than God that we say, if I have this, if I've got that, my needs will be met. I'll I'll be okay. That's idolatry. Whether it's your work or a romantic relationship or alcohol or politics or your financial investments, the things that we look to to take care of us and meet our needs and give us meaning, those are our idols. The, the second sin that the prophets called out is found in verse five. At the end of verse five, it says, deal with each other justly. Deal with each other justly. Alongside of idolatry was injustice. Now, a way to think about idolatry and justice is to think about the two greatest commandments, what Jesus said were the most important commandments. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you give up on that, you are committing idolatry. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. When a society fails to do that, that is injustice. Idolatry and injustice. And when Jeremiah talks about injustice, he gives some examples. He actually lists off three different groups of people who tended to suffer injustice in that society. He talks about the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. The foreigner, these are the immigrants, uh, ethnic and cultural minorities, people who are on the outside of mainstream Israelite culture. The the fatherless, these are orphans and at-risk youth and vulnerable children. And the widows, these are women who have been cut off from the normal system of family and land that usually would have protected them and provided for them. They weren't necessarily older women, they were often younger single moms who had desperate needs. Why these groups? Why are these the ones that the Bible comes back to hundreds of times as examples of injustice? Because in general, these are the groups that had the least power in society. It was a lot easier for people to get away with exploiting them economically and abusing them physically. And so Jeremiah says, uh, another example, he says, do not shed innocent blood in this place. Another example of injustice Sometimes that phrase, shedding innocent blood, it refers to murder. It's one person killing another person. It's conflict between groups of people. But most often in the Bible, it refers to people who have been executed because of an unfair trial, an unfair legal process. And, and so this actually refers both to crime in the streets and corruption in the justice system. And God says both of these injustices need to stop. That the prophets call it idolatry and injustice and say, if they don't stop, judgment is coming. I've had a number of people ask me if I think COVID-19 is God's judgment on us for some sort of sin. And my answer is always this, no, I don't think that God is using COVID as a punishment for our sin, but I do think he's using it as an opportunity for us to see our sin. Because even though the pandemic is not like the exile, it's not a specific disaster to address a specific sin, Times of upheaval, no matter what they are, whether it's personal or societal upheaval, they tend to bring sin to the surface. They tend to expose it and give us a chance to examine our lives. I I know a guy who was diagnosed with cancer really young. He was in his 20s. He was pretty healthy. And they they caught it early. They were able to treat it. And so uh, he's okay now. But the, the process of going through that really shook him up. He wasn't a follower of Christ at the time. And so uh, he looked at his life and he said, what what am I building my life around? What am I living for? And what he saw didn't make him happy. He realized he had been living life just for himself and nothing bigger, nothing more meaningful in his life. And and so he started to examine that and started to look for something more. And he found Jesus and eventually surrendered his life to Christ. Now, if you talk to him, he would tell you, he, he would never say, he would never say, my cancer was a punishment from God for some sin that I had committed. He would never say that. But he would say, that cancer opened my eyes to the sin in my life. It let me see how I was really living in an honest way. It gave me a chance for self-examination. Now, there are lots of people I know that would say the same thing about the crises that have been in their lives. They've opened their eyes. What has this season of crisis done for you? What are the ways it has exposed sin in your life? I was recently talking with a couple who was describing how the stress of this season has actually shown them how they've got really unhealthy patterns of communication and how it leads to conflict and they've had to deal with it because of this. I I talked with a man who admitted that he had been turning to porn for coping with all of the stress. Maybe for you, it's something different. It's alcohol or overeating or gambling. I've heard people who talked about the things that they lost through this crisis, things they were really looking forward to, a a vacation, or maybe it was investments they'd made or the end of their senior year. And those are good things that they were looking forward to, but when they lost them, they realized how much hope they'd put on those things, how much they'd looked to those things to meet their needs, how much they were depending on them. They had actually become idols and they were counting on them more than God and having them taken away, exposed that part of their heart. Where has this crisis exposed sin in your life? that this is a process that can be really, really uncomfortable, but we've got to see it as a gift. It's much better to be punched in the chest than to walk in front of a snowplow. So what is it that you need to deal with in your life? How do you need to let this crisis humble you? Israel was humbled by the exile, but they were also heartbroken by the exile. One of my favorite TV shows right now is the TV show Songland. Maybe you've seen it before. Uh, On the show, uh, aspiring songwriters will come onto the show and they will pitch their songs to an established musical artist. And as they pitch their songs, there are uh, successful songwriters and producers who will uh, interact with them and critique and help them rework their song. And ultimately, the artist will select one of their songs to record. It's a really a great show. And this season, there was a song that was presented that I thought was a really fantastic song. It was called Miracle. And the uh, songwriter said he was inspired by the experiences of his mother. Uh, His mom was a single mom. She worked really, really hard. She had been through so many difficult things and just struggled through her life. And so he wrote the song for her about her need for a miracle. And I want you to hear the lyrics. Bloody knees from prayer. Sadly, nothing has changed. I'm not trying to pressure, but God, did you forget my name? Oh, cause Lord, I could sure use a miracle. Are my prayers, they just going to waste? When I heard this song, I I sat up in my chair. Michelle sat up in her chair. We're like, really? Did did this just get aired on like a a mainstream musical sort of thing? This prayer, this prayer, prayer, that's not just a a prayer, but a desperate lament prayer. This is amazing. The song ended and the artist and the songwriter started to chime in and they they liked how it sounded musically. But then they turned on the lyrics and they said, you know, I I just don't think it's going to connect. I don't think people will listen to that sort of song. It, lyrically, it's kind of a downer. It almost feels angry. And after they had talked about it a while, someone said, yeah, I think it just needs a total rewrite lyrically. And everybody kind of nodded like, yeah, of course it does. Why would they say that? Why would a bunch of successful songwriters think that a raw, honest lament wouldn't connect with people? When Babylon invaded Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah was right on the ground in the city. He saw the devastation as it happened. And he knew exactly why it was happening. He knew about Israel's sin better than most people, but he was still crushed by the suffering that he saw. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine your hometown being leveled to the ground? See, seeing people that you love taken off and, and killed and hurt. Can, can you imagine seeing your nation's capital destroyed Completely. Can you imagine being there as the temple burned down, this symbol of God's presence in his promise, the place where God dwelled, no more. And Jeremiah watched this. And as he watched it, he wrote a series of poems. Those poems are found in the book of Lamentations. It's actually right after the book of Jeremiah is his collection of poems. And I, I just wanna read you a sample. This is actually the final lines of the final poem in Lamentations chapter five. I'm gonna start reading in verse 15. Joy is gone from our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our hearts are faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate with jackals prowling over it. You, Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. A lot of people criticize God or they doubt God because they feel like it doesn't make sense that God would exist and suffering would also exist. But it's interesting that the Bible in some ways is more honest than we are about the reality of suffering. It looks at it more clear-eyed and direct. Most of us, we don't know what to do with deep grief We feel like we're supposed to be happy all the time. And so we take our pain and we suppress it and we hide it and deny it. Or we feel guilty. We don't know what to do. The fact that we're overwhelmed by our situations, we're like, there's something wrong with me. But I think what many of us need, especially in a time of crisis, is permission to be sad. It's okay. With a pandemic, there are so many things that we feel like are just outside of our control that we can't handle, that we don't know what to do with. And most of us, we might not be consciously aware of the feelings that we're feeling, but as I talk with people more and more, I I realize this person's dealing with deep sorrow. That that person's wrestling with fear. This person's experiencing loss and grief. This person's just plain old tired. But many of us, instead of grappling with those emotions, we're, we're translating them all into anger, anger at somebody else. Anger at the people who are making you wear a mask. Anger at the people who aren't wearing their mask. Anger at the president. Anger at the governor. Anger at the left-wing media. Anger at the right-wing media. Anger at the churches that aren't open in person yet. Anger at the churches that are open in person. Anger at the school district. Anger at the employers. Anger at your parents and how they're behaving. Anger at your kids. Anger at your spouse. Anger at somebody. And why do we do this? Because anger feels stronger than sadness. Sadness. The anger feels active, like we're doing something. And it feels good to do something when it feels like there's not much we can do about the situation. If you can find some, someone or something that you can blame, it starts to make sense out of it. Like, that, yeah, that's the problem, I understand it. And you feel just a little bit more in control. But my question is this, what if the anger isn't actually helping you? What if what you really need is permission to be sad? So I just wanna to say to you, it is okay to acknowledge how hard this is. Even five months in, it is still so hard. It is okay to admit that you are afraid. It's okay to say, I've got a sense of loss. This is not how I wanted my year to be. It's okay to just be worn out. It's okay to be unsure of what to do and uncertain about your decisions. It is even okay to wonder why God is letting this happen. God can handle those questions. He can handle the tears. He, he can handle the, the, the grief and the crying out. He knows, he understands, he gets it. In a time of upheaval, you are allowed to be heartbroken. Because of the exile, Israel was humbled, heartbroken, but they were also homesick. You ever been the guest in someone else's home? I don't just mean like coming over for dinner or something like that. I mean like staying for a few days. So there's always this kind of awkward thing that you're kind of navigating with your host, you know, like how's this gonna work? You know, you know it's not your home. So you put up with a lot of things that are a bit inconvenient and you tolerate stuff you normally wouldn't tolerate. So, you know, your host cooks something for dinner that's not the kind of food you normally eat. You usually just eat it. Or if you, you know, taking a shower and you gotta lug your toiletries into the bathroom and out of the bathroom and you can't leave your stuff there. It's like, that's no big deal, Right. You know, And if your host likes to stay up later than you do, uh, you might stay up late with them, or at least you won't complain if you go to bed early and they're still making noise and that sort of thing. But what if it's not just a couple of days? What if it's a long-term stay, it's weeks or months? At that point, you've got to find something a little bit more sustainable. You got to try to find a way that you can kind of bring something of familiarity into the home. Some of your stuff, some of your routine, some of your lifestyle, But even as you do that, you realize this is still somebody else's house. There there are all sorts of things that you're just not gonna have any say in. There might be things you would really want to do differently if you're gonna have to put up with it for a long time. There might be things that really bother you and and make it really difficult to stay there. But, But you know, it's not your home. It's not your decision. And so you've got to figure out a way to both feel at home while dealing with the fact that you'll always be a guest. When Israel was in exile, this was not a weekend vacation. Jeremiah predicted it would be 70 years before any of them returned to the land. And when it happened, the majority of the Jews, they were still scattered, even though some of them had come back. And what's more, their hosts were not exactly trying to make them feel at home where they were. They were actively trying to indoctrinate them in Babylonian culture and religion. And so what are the Jews supposed to do? Well, one option would be to just assimilate, you know, make your life easier, become like the Babylonians, you know, adopt their culture, adopt their gods. It'll go really smoothly. The other option would be to fight back, take up arms, you know, fight for your freedom. But what if those are not the only two options? What if there's a third way? After the first wave of Jews were taken to Babylon, Jeremiah actually wrote a letter to those who had gone into exile already. And he told them, while you're in Babylon, this is what you do. Listen to this. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You notice the repeated word there in the verse? Prosper and prosperity. Here's something really cool about that word. You know what it is in Hebrew? Shalom, shalom. So what Jeremiah is saying is, you've been taken over by a hostile enemy that is pressuring you constantly to compromise your convictions. What do you do in that situation? You seek to bring them as much shalom as you can. Because as long as you are in exile, their shalom is your shalom. It's the same way a good house guest tries to make life easier for their host, not just because it's better for the host, but because if the host is happy, you're gonna have a more enjoyable stay. That's what they're doing in Babylon. And yet it's still Babylon. It's a civilization that's built on pride and violence and idolatry. And if you feel too much at home there, you're gonna be in trouble. So this is the question. How can you seek shalom in a culture that isn't seeking God's shalom? This is a really important question, not just for the Jews to ask, but for us today to ask. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you are in India or Brazil or South Africa or the United States of America. There is no human culture that isn't shot through with idolatry and injustice. And until Jesus returns, we are all exiles wherever we are. That means there is no culture where we should feel completely at home. And yet we are called to seek the peace and prosperity, the shalom of the place where God put us. So how do you do that? How do you seek shalom in a culture that isn't seeking God's shalom? Turns out the entire book of Daniel in the Old Testament was written to answer that question. Got a Bible, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter six. Daniel is the story about a group of young Jewish men who have been selected to be trained, which is another word for brainwashed, into Babylonian culture and religion so that they could work in the Babylonian government. And so this book, every single story in the book is about the tension between how do you seek shalom for the people who have taken you captive, but also not compromise your loyalty to God? How do you get both of those things together? And the most famous story in the book is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And if you've read a kid's Bible, it's almost always in there because it's really exciting. But the setup for the story is this. There are some other government officials who are jealous of Daniel and trying to get him removed. And so they try to find something against him. And this is what it says in Daniel chapter six, verse four. The administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. So they're looking at his work life saying, is there some dirt that we can get on him? But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. I think that this verse captures the two sides of living in exile. The, on the one side, it says, Daniel was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Saying he's good at his job. He, he worked hard. He, he's honest. He does good work, work that's good enough that it could be recognized by people who didn't even share his values. Say, man, that, that guy works well. W- would your coworkers say that about you? Look, I might not get his religion, but I'll just tell you this, there's no denying. Uh, they make our company a better place. Would your non-Christian spouse say that about you? Look, I don't get the Jesus thing, but he, he loves me and he makes our home a wonderful place to live. Your neighbors, look, they're like Ned Flanders, but I don't know what the neighborhood would do without them. It wouldn't be the same. I'm so glad that they're here. Exiles seek the shalom of the place where they live and the people around them can recognize it. But then verse five says this, They would never be able to find charges against him unless it has something to do with the law of his God. See, when it came to his God, Daniel was following a totally different compass. He had different priorities that didn't fit the people around him. He was in the same group, but he didn't have the same agenda. His commitment to God made him better at his work at the same time as being out of sync with the people he worked with. Do you ever feel out of sync with your culture? Parents, when you raise your children... Your priorities ought to look different than the priorities of parents around you. You ought to see things that you are aiming at for your children that other people aren't. There there should be times when you're watching a movie or you see an advertisement and it paints this picture of the good life. When you look at that and you say, "That's that's not the good life. I've read the Bible. I know what the description of shalom is and that doesn't match up. That you should never be fully in sync if you are involved in a political party or a social movement. You should find that you are a, a bad Republican or a bad Democrat because those parties don't line up perfectly with the kingdom of God. When you spend your money, it shouldn't just look like how everybody else in your tax bracket spends their money. Your lifestyle shouldn't be the same as theirs. You should regularly feel like you are going against the grain of the groups around you. We are all exiles And while we should seek the peace and prosperity of this place, we should always, always feel homesick for the kingdom of God. Here's the last point. In the exile, Israel was humbled, heartbroken, and homesick, but ultimately they learned how to be hopeful. If you're reading a prophetic book, it can be really tricky. It can be one of the hardest sections of scripture to actually engage with. So let me give you three questions that really help make sense out of the prophets when you're reading them. Here's the first question. Is the prophet announcing judgment or hope? Judgment or hope? Most prophecies fall into those two broad categories. So before the exile happened, the prophets tended to come with judgment. They're warning about sin because punishment was going to come. But then after the exile happened, they shifted their message and largely their message was about hope. They, They weren't just answering the question, what did you do wrong? They were saying, do we have a future? Has God abandoned us? And honestly, it's really easy to tell the difference between a message of judgment and hope. Even if you've never read the Bible, if I just showed you one, you'd be like, yeah, that's judgment. <laughs> okay, that sounds like hope. It's really easy to figure out. So if you're reading a prophecy of judgment and you're like, I don't get what's going on, but I know this is judgment. The question you should ask is, what sin are they being judged for? Even if the rest doesn't make sense, if you identify that, usually you can hone in on a message and an application, uh, an application that fits. If you are reading a prophecy of hope, the question you should ask is, What promise is God making here? And one of the best ways to identify the promise is to actually work through those aspects of shalom we've been talking about. Look for references to God's purpose, God's people, God's place, and God's presence. Let let me give you an example. We're we're gonna look at uh, the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is another one of these prophets who was during the exile, and he actually was deported to Babylon fairly early. And so he's living there, and he is prophesying to the people about what happens when they get out of exile. And so in verse 24 of Ezekiel 37, 37, 24, it says this. And I, as I read this, I want you to listen for the different aspects of Shalom. It says, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. And they and their children's children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their number, numbers. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Did, did you see this? Okay, it says they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. That's God's purpose. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob. That's God's place. I will establish them and increase their numbers. It's God's people. I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. That's God's presence. And look at the very top, what's going to hold it all together. My servant David will be king over them. That's God's king. One of the descendants of David will rule. You see what's happening here ezekiel and the other prophets are painting a picture that looks dramatically different than the current life on the ground for the exiles what they're experiencing the people are down in the pits in exile but the prophets keep saying shalom is coming shalom is coming back it's coming it's an upward trajectory of a message of hope the second question when reading prophecy is is the imagery literal or figurative the, the prophets tend to use pretty wild imagery. They're, they're often written in poetry. That the lion is laying down with the lamb, that a little kid is playing over the hole of a cobra, that the mountains are flattened and Jerusalem is raised up on a mountain larger than the world, that the sun is going dark and the moon is turning to blood. And you get all sorts of stuff like that. And when you read it, you've got to decide is this literal or figurative? And I'll give you a hint, okay? The vast, vast majority of it is figurative. Now, let me make something really, really clear. That does not mean it's not true. It just means it's conveying the truth through poetry and metaphor and hyperbole. It's just like when someone says, I'm starving, I could eat a horse. This bag, it weighs a ton. My dad is gonna kill us when we get home. They're not lying when they say those things, but they're not being literal either. And the value of the imagery, though, is that it conveys not just what it's describing, but the feeling behind it, the significance of it. The poetry stirs us to respond, not just understand what's being said. Now, the passage in Ezekiel that I just read, it's a bit more on the literal side than most prophecy, but even it has some imagery about uh, the kings being shepherds and so on. And the things that it describes as you read the rest of the prophets, you realize point to things that are much, much bigger. You know, the the presence of God in the temple is about God's presence in his people. And the the land being renewed is about the whole world being renewed. It points at something beyond just the immediate thing. The, The third question that you need to ask about prophecy is, is it already fulfilled or is it still future? Fulfilled or future? Most people, when they read the prophets, they automatically default to, this is still something in the future. It's predicting something. Now you have to remember, the Old Testament prophets were addressing really specific things in their own day. They were talking about situations that God sent them to speak into. And so the vast majority of what they talk about are about situations that were present for them and past for us. And even the things that were not fulfilled in their day, that were future predictions, many of them were fulfilled in either Jesus or the early church. And so while there are Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled and will be fulfilled when Jesus returns, you shouldn't assume that when you're reading one, that it's in the future. Most of them have already been fulfilled in some way. Now, how do you figure that out? The easiest way to figure it out, because a lot of us, it's like, I'm not sure exactly what event this is referring to, is to get a study Bible. An NIV study Bible, in the notes, if it's an event that's been identified, this has happened, it will point it out that that's already happened. What about the promises I just read in Ezekiel 37? Have they already been fulfilled or are they future? We're gonna talk about that a bit more in the upcoming weeks as we get into the New Testament, but I'll I'll give you the answer ahead of time. The surprising answer is both. Those promises have already been fulfilled and they are not yet uh, fulfilled. Uh, They're still in the future. So we're gonna get to that. We're gonna explain what that means. Here's where the Old Testament ends. Let me, let me just put it this way. The Old Testament ends with a cliffhanger. From the perspective of the Jews, the exile looks like the end of the story. This is not good. God made some really big promises, but the people screwed it up and that's that, it's over. The, the big God story, it turns out, it was a tragedy. That's what any reasonable person on the ground would have thought after exile. You ever felt that way about your own life? You look at your life, you're like, after this, I don't know what's gonna happen next. Maybe I'm done for. Maybe God is finished with me. Maybe my story is a tragedy. And you look at your current crisis and it feels like this is going to go on forever. Nothing will ever change. You ever been there? I wonder if actually in the wake of a crisis, that's actually the moment where hope shines through even brighter. That earthquake in 1994 in LA, when the people started calling in as they saw this giant silvery cloud in the sky above them, you know what they were seeing? They were seeing the Milky Way. They hadn't seen it before because normally the lights of the city drowned it out. It was too bright to see the stars. Even out here in the distant suburbs of Chicago, that's kind of the case. You can see like a, you know, a dozen stars on a good night. But it was only when the lights went out, well, only because there was a disaster that they were able to actually see something beyond their immediate surroundings, something that was bigger and brighter and bolder. It was when Israel was in their place of darkness, After the earthquake of exile that God sent the prophets, and the prophets dared to ask the question, what if the story God is telling isn't actually over? In the darkness, the prophets were able to see beyond the immediate disaster, and they could see something bigger and grander shining through a future that God had for his people. This is the reason why Jeremiah, along with the other prophets, could say, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, and in Hebrew, that's to give you shalom. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That that promise didn't take away the reality of the loss they were going through. It it didn't shorten the waiting that they would have to endure. It, It didn't tell them exactly how God was gonna work everything out and get from the present crisis to a future hope, but it did tell them who was writing the story. And maybe in this season of loss and uncertainty and weariness, that's what you need to hear. This is not the end of the story that God is writing for you or for his world. And we know that the end is actually good. And the reason we know that is because of where the big God's story goes next, what we're gonna talk about next week. We know the end is good because of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us and especially in seasons like this one, that you would make us people who are humble, that you would help us come to you with our heartbreak, that we would live homesick for your kingdom and that we would be hopeful people, even when things are dark, that we would see the light shining beyond the hope in the future that you have prepared for us. And we pray that we would be people who bring shalom to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.